everybody, we are back. Welcome to CanCon, your cannibal resource for Canadian cannibal content. And we got a special episode for you today to kick off Season 2, and here's a hint. That's right, we're going to be talking about the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre today. I'm Zachary. And I'm Jocelyn. And yeah, welcome to CanCon. Um, we are releasing our first and second episode out of order. We made a big deal of the order. Um, and about, I think our desired goal overall is to talk about films somewhat chronologically within a season. Uh, and then we both got COVID and... Yeah, I was like, we should get back into season two, and the the film that has, like, climate stuff in it felt like it was kind of too scary to tackle while we were still sick, so we went with um, our first slasher film instead. Yeah, um, we're mostly better, still hanging in there. Yeah, I'm still a little low energy. You can probably hear our dog normally. We've been um, asking our in-laws to kind of corral her um, in the main part of the house, not our little basement apartment where we record, but they are not home right now. So she is uh, going to be snorfling away and making beagle sounds while we record. So if you hear something that sounds like a creature in the background, you are not having a stroke. That is our dog. Yeah. Not a low-flying helicopter. <laughs> not a, that's funny. Yeah, not a low-flying helicopter indeed. Um, Zachary, let's start with, I think this one was your pick. Yeah. And there's a bunch of things that I didn't know about this film <clears throat> before we started. Like, I didn't know it was an indie film um, that obviously kind of grew to a lot of fame. There have been quite a few remakes. Um, I don't think I realized that it was as influential in the slasher genre as it as it clearly, like, watching it. Um, you can just see all kinds of influence kind of all the way through, or you can see where it's influenced kind of later films and stuff. So um, do you want to just give us a little introduction to the film? Yeah, I mean, an important kind of factoid about the film that also, like, not just speaks to its following and its success but also its placement in the history of american horror films is uh in 1974 when it was released the texas chainsaw massacre became the highest grossing independent film of all time and then it gets surpassed in 1978 four years later but by john carpenter's halloween another independent slasher horror film uh not necessarily like uh owing a huge influence to it, but the same kind of aesthetic, the same kind of violent, uh, you know, we have like a ominous masked killer kind of motif. Um, but just the, it's very much the spearhead of a genre the, that Texas Chainsaw Massacre is, um, that feels like it's been around forever. So we are kind of watching the slasher film that hadn't seen the slasher film. Yeah, and, and I think there's the the cannibalism in this film is has a different kind of place than a lot of the other films that we've that we've seen so far, where it's kind of the core of the film and everything kind of um kind of like orbits around it. But it also has a purpose, like a really clearly defined purpose, I think, in the the film's central message, which is about eating animals, I, right? Yeah. As, as much as it's about like the horrors of, of cannibalism, or it, it makes um, it draws parallels between those things in these really, um, really horrifying way. It's a really scary film. It is, yeah, it is. It has the, that kind of like, uh, like not just because it's shot in this kind of grainy, uh, low definition film, but just there's, yeah, there's just there's shots where like the the, the, the villains are coming out of like the corner of the shot or they're kind of moving around in the background. Like it's got this creaky kind of almost documentary or like handheld film footage quality. Um, it's got kind of like that snuff kind of feel like this is maybe a, 
a film you find in a canister somewhere and it's like, oh, like this is some disturbing stuff. Uh, even the, the film begins with a voiceover insisting that this is all based on true events, uh, which is a fa it's which is actually a fictionalization, although it's loosely, very loosely based on some of Ed Gein's crimes, uh, as was Silence of the Lambs. Yeah, I think that kind of stuff is just like I'm putting the the pop culture scholar aside. I think it's really funny that on the one hand you could say like, you can just sort of freely throw the phrase based on a true story around on a pretty willy-nilly um, as a feature of storytelling, which, like, I want storytellers to have, you know, a really robust toolkit. I'm not, not criticizing that. But then at the same time, like, every time you open a novel, there's, like, a, any <laughs> similarity to any person's living or dead is purely a coincidence that feels like a fun tension in contemporary storytelling copyright gray areas or something like that yeah it, it works really well in this film too because it's like the it's a great piece of myth making at the very beginning of a film that has been heavily mythologized and just kind of kind of feels like one of those uh like one of those films that just even the title being so gratuitous and so audacious it's like one of those ones where it's just like don't let the kids see this one you know it just sounds bad yeah, so some of the things that we learn from this film as, I think that's a great way to put it, Zach, the slasher film that hasn't seen the slasher film, um, things that really surprised me that worked super, super well were you don't need a lot of pretense. Like, the setup is, not that there's no setup um, to the story, but it's really brief and it like, the film really trusts the audience to just be like, there's these kids in a van and they're going to visit a property that one or two, they're siblings? I I always remembered two of them being siblings or cousins. And I don't know if I just missed that detail this time, but it didn't feel as as uh, clear cut as it was in my... I've seen it so many times, I should know. But I think, I, th I believe two of them are related, but essentially they're going to someone's, uh, like, great aunt's house or something like that out in the Texas countryside. Yeah, I thought it was Franklin's dad. Like, I thought it was the house that he grew up in. There's a couple comments that kind of reinforce that. Yes, and because they call it the Franklin house, and then I think at some point he's referred, the, the character Franklin is referred to as Franklin Jr. So I think Franklin's the family name. Something like that. Yeah, and so you we get this setup. It's really kind of not, like, thinly alluded to. Like, the film tells us with kind of dialogue with the characters as they're all in their van or whatever that this is where they're going and this is what they're doing um but we don't have to get any like other lore there's no there is a legend there's no oh be careful out there kids there's a monster somewhere or, like there's just like they're going on this trip they go too far into the woods they visit the wrong house, and then all of a sudden Leatherface is there. It's actually, the the closest comparison I can think of is all, it's another great Southern Gothic story, is uh, A Good Man is Hard to Find by Flannery O'Connor, where hmm. they're, the family's on the road and hear about the escaped convicts on the radio before they encounter the convicts. And it's similar to this, where in Texas Chainsaw Massacre, we start with a news report of some bodies being unearthed, and uh, there's a brief scene where the our protagonist stopped to visit the grave of one of the family members, and there's some talk in the background. I think the locals are talking about some some bodies going missing. So it's similar to the O'Connor story. It's like rather than it be like some legend from long ago, and they start to hear whispers from the townsfolk about it, we're hearing about it in real time, and they just happen to be in the wrong place at the wrong time in that they're in the vicinity of an ongoing series of crimes and that eventually catastrophically they come face to face with the perpetrators. Yeah. And it's, it's really interesting to me that, um, the opening sequences with the grave robbing, it's like not clear. Like it just, it's, it's kind of like, Oh, this other taboo thing. So we're not in the realm of cannibalism yet, but grave robbing is like, pretty pretty taboo right we like we, we 
have laws about how we're supposed to treat corpses and um I think like like respect for the dead is not is not nothing right it's not a small idea it's a really big cultural idea that is pretty like there are very few times that I will use the word universal um but I think respect for the dead whatever that looks like obviously what that means in particular is, is particular to is the particulars are particular, but that is what I mean, um, to specific cultures, but respect for the dead is a pretty, a pretty universal idea, and it, the beginning of the film is like, oh no, like, who is grave robbing, is everybody grave robbing, like, it's suddenly this rampant problem in this small community, and that's kind of the chaos, I guess, that's like, the chaos of the world that the film kind of opens into. Yeah, and kind of, uh, starting as with between the voiceover explaining that this is a true story and these are the crimes that happened and then going immediately into a news report about grave robbing uh kind of this idea that yeah we're we're here in like the worst of the worst in america or you know the worst of the worst on earth like we're 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 in the bad place where the bad things happen and saturn is in retrograde saturn is in retrograde yeah that gets mentioned really early on that's a great point yeah so we did no research. I was like, oh, I bet I could look up what that means, and I didn't. So if you're a listener and you also um, enjoy astrology and you have any insight into what Saturn being in retrograde means beyond just that it means um, kind of spaces opened up for really awful things or chaos or something like that, if you can give us more details, we would uh, we would love to hear from you about that. Yes, please do. Yeah, so we get one of the... The, so like there's there's a couple of things yeah that that we see in this film that are really familiar but they're familiar um because of you know since this film um was released and, and became so popular other films have emulated a similar formula so we get um a scary masked murderer who doesn't speak and seems to not have kind of at it's usually a, I, I think it's usually a a masculine figure, like an imposing physical large red is masculine. Yeah, um, yeah. Figure at one point. Um, Leatherface, is that the name of Leatherface the... Leatherface is the name of the character. Yeah, yeah, at one point, Leatherface has a couple of outfits. One of them is kind of a scary, twisted maternal figure who uh, seems to only show up at the dinner table as this kind of gesture to this very twisted, dark domesticity... Um, but we got this murderer who doesn't really speak and doesn't seem to have a full, like, breadth of human consciousness available to him. Uh, we get the final girl kind of introduced. Yeah, yeah, with Marilyn Burns's performance as Sally, where uh, she... It's funny now, because I'm just connecting with Halloween being four years later, where we also have a masked, like, mute killer, uh, which seems to be, like... a Okay, same with Jason Voorhees once we get to the Friday the 13th movies. Like, the the lack of speech seems to be a line that carries through from Texas Chainsaw Massacre into some of these other films. But, yeah, we get... Um, it, it's interesting. The film is kind of similar to the first Alien movie where it seems to be written like you're not supposed to know right away like who's going to live or who's going to be the main protagonist. Um, it's kind of not until everybody else has been cut down that we sort of realize Sally's going to be our focal point and then she ends up becoming yeah the the uh the scream queen or the final girl at the end of the film who makes it out alive it's also I mean it's interesting to note too one of the things that gets said about this movie a lot is that it's not as uh as bloody or gratuitous as its reputation would have you believe or that it's a little it's more clever it's more smart i think it's also interesting just talking about like the concept of the final girl in horror films and in scream they introduce the or at least like acknowledge the trope or the cliche about the girl who maintains her virginity as the one who survives it's very interesting this is a movie about like five young people on a road trip in the heat of summer and they go to like a swimming uh, like a watering pool and stuff there's no nudity in this movie. There's no sex in this movie. Like, it's... There's the things that it does differently from a lot of the imitators are just as interesting as what it 
does that was carried on by all the other slasher films to come hence. Yeah, I think there's a um, uh, very much a trend of some kind of moral punishment in in later slasher films, where usually it's um, usually it's like having sex, right? Being I don't even know if I want to use the word promiscuous, but like not available. Maybe. Yeah, not adhering to like a strict moral code that maintains that sex outside of marriage is um, is bad, right? Is is grounds for punishment in in a lot of later slasher films, and often um, there's lots of tropes also with like babysitters who allow themselves to be distracted by sex for example and then therefore they're putting the children in danger now they get to get punished right there's this whole um kind of relatively complex layering that gets that gets kind of built in i think i think it's i'm just kind of giving specifics to it yeah yeah no precisely yeah Yeah. in this one it's kind of more just like these seem like four people we might want to like like they're not like eminently likable but they're not dislikable like franklin's pretty interesting he's like by far the most vocal and uh the most fleshed out of any of the characters but they mostly just they kind of and maybe that was the intention was to make them kind of seem like an unassuming bunch of people you might have like gotten high with in high school you know like just this kind of like group of friends and, and it lends the the horror story that proceeds like this kind of like it could happen to anyone sort of feel. Yeah, and I think um, the idea that they're in a group of, of five young people you might have gotten high with is really funny. When we were watching it, I noted that oh, yeah. um, <laughs> that if there was any text that I thought maybe this film was being influenced by was Scooby-Doo. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were going to point out that the one guy looked like uh, Hyde from that 70s show, but... <laughs> Yeah, it is Scooby-Doo. That blew my mind. I've never noticed that before. Yeah, Mystery Machine. Yeah. All just in the van, uh, trying to unmask. They don't unmask the the monster, but in part because there's, like, he would just be a monster underneath, too, I guess, rather than look at this regular person with a mask, because they collapse into one another. It does have that Scooby-Doo motif, though, where people we met earlier, who we may be weren't as suspicious of as we should have been are revealed to be part of the spooky plot. Part of the con, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one of the things that this film does that is um, really interesting that I think we should talk about is that there are two characters who we kind of stick with, we get attached to, they get some amount of character development. Like, outside of, we were really interested in the um the the awful grotesque family we get yeah. some some really interesting insight into how they've been living and why they've been doing the really awful things that they're doing but um but before we get into that kind of dark side of things there's two characters and one of them is Sally the young woman who makes it out alive and makes it out she's the only one of them who one of the twists will spoil everything for you in this podcast. So I'm going to spoil the twist now is not only are those of the young people on, on this adventure who are murdered about to become people who are served at a roadside barbecue um, restaurant, but they also consume the barbecue from the same restaurant. And Sally is the only one of them who ever has to kind of confront that knowledge. Yeah, head on, and then by surviving, has to live with it. Yeah. Uh, which is, well, just to as a quick little explanation of what, so they, our protagonists stop at a, a little barbecue stand on their way looking for the house they're looking for, and they pick up some barbecue, and, you know, they're eating it, that's their lunch that day. And then it's not until Sally later on is being chased by Leatherface and seeks refuge in the barbecue shop and there's a radio on talking about the missing body parts that from the corpses that were dug up uh, that she kind of starts looking into the, it's like a rotisserie or something, but it's like this, the barbecue cooking in the, in the, the oven. And she starts something about it suddenly manifests to her as human flesh. And by then it's just like, it's far too late. And, you know, she's in the clutches of the family, but, uh, so her horror is both like the horror of what 
these people have been doing. They've been killing people and eating them. And she's trapped. So there's the horror of like, it's not over yet. And they've got me. But it's like the real horror in that moment where she's just staring at the meat is like, oh my God, like I ate that. Like that's people that could have been my friends. Yeah. And it's part of the function of the film, which is about consuming like just just eating meat and consuming animals um as well as factory farming which we'll we'll talk about in just a second but yeah the the other character who gets any amount of screen time and i actually think more character development than sally i think considerably more really when you look at the film and line for line and yeah and like she is a powerhouse in the closing sequence which i think we'll we'll turn to after we discuss franklin a bit but which i mean like the second half of the film fully is kind of this one long yeah um, kind of terrifying sequence um and her performance is just amazing um like just incredible um but there's not much right like she's performing a very realistic fear and not to say that that's nothing but it's like we know very little of her outside of um that performance of fear which is a pretty like contextually based like she's kind of just responding to things yeah even of the five of them there's the two other people who get killed or the first two to get killed they're the ones going off to look to a place to swim so we kind of assume they're a couple but we're not even clear if Sally's romantically involved with uh, not Franklin, but the other man who gets killed. Like there's her history and her backstory. Everything is kept very like ambiguous. Yeah. Um, so we got this development of this character, Franklin and Franklin is a person who uses a wheelchair. And I didn't know that that was going to be like a part of, of that character going in. And I find the way that it was dealt with, <clears throat> really interesting so um issues of representation just before like some caveats before we talk about it because I think there's a way like that it's there's some things that I want to critique there's some things that I think are really interesting and well done um issues of representation are always kind of bound I think by this like twofold thing which is when you have groups of people whose stories don't get told very often right who represent for example, persons with disabilities, like Franklin, this character who uses a wheelchair does, there's this problem, which is that every representation has to hold up way more weight than it should ever be asked to, like, than, than is fair, I guess, um, because of just dearth of representation. So we need more representation and we need more good representation of all kinds of groups of people, including wheelchair users, just to like, just like to name the same category, um, as, as, um, we're talking about here. Um, but we're going to talk about again, so this kind of strengths and weaknesses of this, of this representation. So I have some thoughts, Zach, but what are your, your thoughts about, like Franklin as a character just generally, um, and then of course, I mean, he is a person with a disability, right? So that's also just always part of his character. Yeah, I just I I the things I find positive about it are that it's never there's no kind of um, the film isn't constantly hitting us over the head with like him being in a wheelchair as being this uh, like taking the place of any kind of personality he has. Um, like he's like kind of cranky, extremely neurotic, quirky guy, but he's also kind of like funny and he's perceptive and thoughtful in ways that the other characters aren't like even, even when he's kind of, uh, making himself nervous or, or working himself up into a bit of a, you know, a bit of a fear. Um, at the same time, he's there's it's kind of like it's not so much that I feel like we're ever called upon to like laugh at him or think he's annoying or think he's a goof because he's in a wheelchair but I guess it is unfortunate that the only of the five characters who you could say any of those things about that they act goofy or that we're kind of laughing at them at times or that we find them irritating or cranky 
it does happen to be the the character who's in a wheelchair, but it's also a character who's in a wheelchair on a road trip in like 42 degree weather in the middle of nowhere in Texas. So, I mean, I'd probably be cranky too. Yeah. And I, I think for me, part of what is like a potential positive is that like, we couldn't say very much about any of the other characters at all. Right. So it's not like there's, you know, four likable, well fleshed out characters and then there's Franklin. It's like there's four characters who kind of have one or two throwaway lines who we understand are on this trip, um, who all seem to be connected to each other, like as a friend group. And those are like really, um, like a description of their situation and not about who they are. Um, yeah, I really, I like that his disability is represented on the screen but never mentioned so he's um not treated like a burden or like he's special or even very much like he's different and like obviously there are some things that are different when your mobility is you know you use wheels um to get around and those things are depicted like how he gets in and out of the van with a little makeshift ramp and um, when Franklin and Sally eventually go to see what's up with their friends, um, she, I think she pushes the wheelchair. Uh, oh, when they go it. through the woods? Yeah. Yeah, she says, I can't push you, uh, through the woods because it'll be too, and then he sort of, uh, manages to cup the flashlight under his arm saying, like, he'll wheel himself, although she does end up, uh, helping him get through some of the brambles, so. Which is, I was gonna say, is, like, I know that by itself might be a little bit contentious or like don't push people's wheelchairs if like you're not explicitly asked by a person in a wheelchair um and it's a horror movie it's a slasher movie we know all or most of them are gonna die and he doesn't die first and that to me um again I don't want to like it's not a perfect representation there's an early I'm going to critique an early thing that happens in just a second but um there were some things that I thought were were surprised like it surprised me in a really positive way yeah and actually one of my favorite parts about the portrayal and I think it happens right before the part you're about to talk about for its uh, negative impact is that the film opens they pull over and Franklin uh you know, uses his ramp to get out of the van, but then uh, has his, like, a, a tin can that he's peeing in on the side of the road, and it just kind of feels like, in general, just, like, a nice humanizing detail that, like, we're on a long trip, and, like, you know, he can't just necessarily, you know, step out the back and, and go pee on the side of the road like anybody else in the van would. Like, it's kind of not so much, uh, like like a highlighting of difference in a negative or positive way. It's kind of like an acknowledgement of uh, just like his, the difficulties involved in his being in the trip, but also the fact that like there are very much solutions to those difficulties and the five of them are taking this trip on as peers. Yeah. I think that's, um, I think that's a good way of putting it. And I think one of something clicked for me while you were speaking there, Zachary, which is, um, his death is, like, the first one we care about. Like, we, we care, Sally doesn't die, we, but we're invested in her survival because of the kind of elongated scene, right? We get invested in her fear, and, um, she has to go through some really awful stuff that we'll, we'll unpack in, in just a second, but his death is the first one that we are really, really invested in, and it is not because he's depicted as extra vulnerable or something like that in his wheelchair. Um, but it's because he's depicted as so human. Yeah. I was going to say almost kind of the opposite of rather than vulnerable, like as much as he's, he's very nervous and jittery and, you know, he's kind of, you know, like a complainer in scare quotes, but it's like, he's got this big personality and like just this kind of like, real like uh sort of like 
he has this real like motion to him and like this kind of like in that he's a lot of activity circles around him like he's starting conversations that kind of get the plot moving along or that draw the audience's attention to different aspects of parts of the story when they early on it's kind of a key scene just in outlining like the outlining some of the themes of the film but they pass by the old slaughterhouse in the countryside and uh, because he's out he's from that region uh, Franklin's able to regale everybody with all of the information and minutia he knows about the the slaughterhouse so even though he's he's jumpy and he you know he's he's kind of frazzled all the time he also has like a certain kind of a knowledge and like a larger than life quality that you could kind of see if the film went differently like he's the kind of character you'd want to have around because he'd make you feel safer yeah i guess that's the part of it is their um he's got home turf advantage right he their own um they're in his neck of the woods like quite quite literally um yeah i think we should talk about the the slaughterhouse because it gets introduced really early in the film and then we kind of don't think about it for a while and then it comes back around at the end so the scooby squad pick up (laughs) the hitchhiker who is um unwell i think is the way he's he's jittery i'm talking about frank franklin being jittery this guy is like just real, like, on edge, intense, sweat, and he's been out in the sun all day. Yeah, and I think Franklin is, like, the only one of the people in the van who fully realizes how off this guy is. Like, they're all a little bit like, "Mm, no thank you. Franklin's like, that guy is really... It's one of my, my favorite lines in the movie is, he doesn't even say it under his breath or to one of the other characters... The hitchhiker sits down in front of him. Like we see the hitchhiker looking at our cast. The cast looks back at the hitchhiker, and Franklin says, "We picked up Dracula." Yeah, it's just like he and the guy doesn't even register it. And it's like again, it's that kind of funny. It's like the the wisdom of fools, where it's like Franklin knows that that's an okay thing to say to this guy because there's probably going to be ways to set him off, but it's not going to be by calling him Dracula to his face. And this guy has his own things he's concerned about anyway, so he's not really paying attention to how people are addressing him. Yeah, and one of the first things that, the first conversations that they have is they have this debate about changes made at the slaughterhouse between uh, modes of of killing the, it's cattle, right? Cattle, yeah. Um, Franklin suggests that the newer mode, which is... Uh, Pressurized air gun. Yeah, yeah, is a more humane option. He says it's better. I says don't think anyone. I think he maybe. Yeah, yeah. Says humane. Yeah. I think he says better in the terms of it being efficient because he starts. He freaks everyone out by saying it's just boom, 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 and uh, simulating the the air gun going in and out. Whereas, because uh, he mentions the sledgehammer can take a whole bunch of blows to finally work. Yeah, and and the it's the hitchhiker who. We learn his family has lost jobs at the slaughterhouse with the new technology, which takes fewer people, right? And so his, um, and I think it's it's part of the bigger message of the film. Part of what the cannibalism is kind of trying to, kind to trying to to show us by horrifying us, right? Um, is this idea that we're talking about? jobs and efficiencies and well you know fewer people are working when it's this versus that um and even if they were using the language of this is a more humane way to butcher an animal or this is a less humane way to butcher an animal it's like um the film is trying to kind of reveal to us the grotesqueness of of butchering the animal at all yeah um and I think it is looking at the the dangers of like the lack of conscience involved in doing so, where the discussions are more about like you know the we need to make things more efficient, like again the factory farming approach, like let's get you know build a better build a better mouse trap, like you know let's get a 
let's get an air gun instead of a sledgehammer. And then once we finally get to the house, the family's house with Leatherface there, we kind of see uh, what we see. We get a window into like a, a world, like a microcosm of a world where, uh, you know, in not so many words, it's uh, where people are treating other people with the same callousness uh, as these slaughterhouses treat cattle. Yeah, and look at that. The similarities drawn in a number of ways, like the explicit way in that um, the people are being butchered by Leatherface to be um, cut up and and sold at the barbecue, uh, roadside barbecue restaurant. We earlier get some other um, parallels with the the hitchhiker who shows them uh, pictures of like a flayed, like a butchered and flayed cow's body, right, being kind of separated into parts uh, right before he takes Franklin's picture, right? Right. So he's kind of capturing, it's it's like capturing maybe different stages of the process or something. Um, but so, it, Franklin's really unnerved, and he, I don't think he says this explicitly, but it's kind of like, yeah, if, if this is the kind of guy who carries around Polaroids of butchered cattle, do you really want him to have a Polaroid photo of you in his in his bag? Yeah, I think the question of efficiency is so interesting because it's like more efficient for who, right? Like who who benefits from the efficient? Like it's it's and and again, like I don't think the film is on the side of um, it, in a simple way on the side of the workers who lose their jobs. Like I don't think it's like they lost their jobs and then they went crazy and started bur- like butchering people. Like I don't think that's that's really the um, yeah. That's the thing, but but there's like well, it's not more efficient for the workers or the people who, under capitalism, require jobs to pay for the things that they need to live. Um, it's not more efficient for the cows, right? Who, um, like I think when we get to the the closing scene, that really long scene with Sally, um. The idea, like, if there was a more efficient way to murder her, I don't think that that would just be, like, that wouldn't that wouldn't make me feel any better, you know? Yeah. Well, it's interesting too, because yeah, there's you have the, I guess he's like the oldest brother. Although I used to always think he was the father, but the man who runs the barbecue shop talks about how there's no, you know, he takes no pleasure in the killing or watching the killing, but he, you know, but he eats with his two brothers. And he has the most, he passes the most easily as just like a civilian. He's got like a uniform where he works and he, you know, he runs a public facing business. He's not an eccentric hitchhiker like the one brother or Leatherface who's, we just, we never even see his face. He's always got a different mask made out of skin that he's treated from some of his victims um so you have on the one side yeah more of like a one-to-one correspondence between the slaughterhouse and and the family's home where in both cases the killing is so that they the food can be eaten but we see uh one of the victims accidentally goes into uh i presume it's supposed to be leatherface's room but it's a room in the house that uh we see a side of the killing that's more ritualistic or maybe more like fetishistic and it's certainly not practical the way just killing people and turning them into barbecue would be practical as a way of like making food where we have furniture made out of people again, kind of like in Ed Gein fashion, we have bones hanging from chandeliers and, you know, gruesome sort of, uh, complicated little dioramas like that. Uh, but it's also interesting cause it's not, so it's not even like, well, you know, we eat, we, you know, we eat the cow, but when we eat people, we have this other side to it where we want to wear their skin and we want to like make furniture out of them because there's also like, there's cattle horns and bone skeletons intermingled with the human remains in that room. So the, the side of killing for the family, that's also like pleasurable and not simply killing to prepare food isn't unique to humans like they also make art 
and furniture and, you know, different accoutrements out of uh, dead animal parts the same way they do out of dead human parts. So it it's kind of like the film, it, it should be an inconsistency, but it feels more like the film's just kind of looking at this wide breadth of, of like a culture around death and murdering within this family and the different guises it can take. Yeah, I think it's, um, it's like, if the, the parallel of, you know, that that I, I think the film, I think it's similar to Bones and All, right? It's, it's, um, putting animals and people side by side and, and prompting the viewer to, to say like, why is one okay and the other not? Um, and to think about, um, I think that, that that part too is really affecting, right? Like we're sitting on a fake leather couch um, and it's a fake leather couch, but like it's all I could think about when we were watching the scene. Like there's a couch made of, of human remains where you can see like scapula making kind of the back of the couch and things like that, right? Where it's like, Oh, if you start to think about the treatment of animals uh, and the way that we do use their bodies and their bones and their skin and all of those things, that looking around the average, like westernized person's home could could get could be horrifying in a similar way. Like I think that's, um, I think that's part of what that scene is maybe prompting us to do at the same time that it's also just a horrifying scene. Yeah. Well, even kind of like, and if, if someone was trying to be sort of an apologist for, uh, for factory farming, for instance, it's kind of like the, the scenes that are less, less, uh, like fantastical or cinematic, like Leatherface's first kill when he, he just comes out of his back room with a sledgehammer, hits one of the protagonists I think it just takes like one swing of the sledgehammer and the guy's down. It's essentially exactly how we've heard from Franklin of how the cattle are slaughtered. Um, so like that's an instance where really all we're seeing is what Franklin described in the slaughterhouse where everybody's kind of like, Oh gross. Come on. I still eat meat. I don't want to think about it. So then we get this image of this grown man being struck and killed in one blow with a sledgehammer and without all the, the, fantastic you know people wearing each other's skin and building furniture and whatnot it kind of just speaks to the horror of the killing itself yeah and this is something that just occurred to me kind of reimagining that um that scene uh which is that it puts us as viewers in in the way the camera moves in that scene as being like the next cow that's coming up the the runway right he enters the house and there's this long hallway and he is looking for um he thinks they're because they're almost at a gas as part of the the thing so he thinks he's going to ask them will they have a gas generator so they'll have gasoline so we'll go and we'll ask for help and we won't have to stay in this this horrible place and he walks down this kind of long narrow hallway there's only one place to go and it's in this room at the end of the hall and then the door swings open terrifying unsettling man takes a hammer hits him exactly one time picks him up takes his body into the like the back room the back slams room. it's a metal sliding door it's so ominous and that's actually a great visual just as a way of like denormalizing things about factory farming like you never want to be on the other side of like the metal sliding door where the, the butchering is happening yeah you don't want to go through the door you don't want to go through. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, Zach, when we had proposed this season in our introductory episode, you had come up with this concept of the restaurant. Yes. Um, and I'm wondering if you can just go over that really briefly. I'm going to, I'm going to cut your description, uh, and make it into like a pin mini zone. So folks can, uh, as an introduction to the season, understand what we mean when we say it. But so can you, um, as well as obviously included in this episode. So what do you mean when you say the restaurant? Cause we're going to use that phrase, the restaurant, um, throughout the whole season to describe a similar phenomenon. What is it that we're describing? If I recall correctly, it's been a little while. The restaurant is a, situ- a hypothetical situation wherein people are being, 
served human meat without their own knowing. So we've already seen one instance of this in Titus where they serve the the goth children to their mother. Um, but the, the restaurant works as sort of a catch-all theoretical term to say that, like, in this case, in this film, you know, the restaurant is literally a restaurant, the barbecue restaurant, but we also have a, a moment of restaurant in the last third of the film when uh, Sally's been abducted by the family and is at the dinner table with them with the idea being that uh, they're going to slowly eat and prepare her, but with her own involvement. Yeah, it's like she's invited to dinner first. It's really grotesque. Yeah, and presumably there'll be like other the meat of other people on hand as well as how that would fit into the... Because they have the whole... They've, they've served everyone. They've already... Yeah, there's already meat on the table when that scene starts, yeah. Yeah, so we get to this this horrifying scene. Um, Sally realizes what's happening in um, initially. I don't think she doesn't know that, that people are being murdered to be eaten, but she she sees Franklin get attacked with a chainsaw in the woods. Right in front of her, yeah. Uh, she runs, um, and there's she runs a big loop through the woods and ends up back at the house. It's awful. She eventually gets away from the house and ends up at the barbecue, like, the literal restaurant, and she thinks she's being rescued, and then, of course, is brought just back to the house again, and it's when she's back at the house that kind of the big scene happens, so she wakes up. Well, a lot of things converge, because then we also find out that the hitchhiker from earlier is part of the family, and the barbecue man, who's the one that's abducted Sally after posing as her rescuer. Yeah. And then there's a character named Grandpa who, for all the world, looks to be a decaying corpse, but is actually still alive. And he's going to be part of the dinner the dinner scene with Sally as both guest and, like, main course. Yeah, and they feed him blood from her finger, and he kind of animates, and it's... Yeah, he's just sort of suckling at it like he's barely conscious, and then in an even maybe even more distressing scene right before she finally escapes they're holding her head over a a, like a bloodletting bucket and trying to get grandpa insisting that grandpa was the best in the county when it came to killing cattle with sledgehammers they're trying to get grandpa to split her head open with a sledgehammer but because he's essentially just like feeble and like a few steps away from death maybe the hammer just keeps falling out of his hand and just kind of grazing sally's head while she's screaming but it does allow the opportunity for her to to push away and escape so i don't know if we want to before we wrap up dwell some more on the that long because this is about half hour of the film we're talking here from when franklin dies to when she finally escapes it's just this whole kind of blood-curdling sequence where she's trying to get away from these people and jumping through windows and getting lacerated and um, seeing her friends killed and realizing she ate human barbecue. And it's uh, it's, it's a real... Um, yeah, I think that, that there's a bunch of things that happen in that scene. Um, one is we get to see... You know, there's this debate again about early on. We see the debate about is the pressurized air gun better or is the hammer better? Well, the hammer's better because it's people don't lose their jobs. The pressurized air pressurized air gun's better because it's more efficient. Um, and we get to see kind of a, a live out version of of what the hammer looks like. And this is, I think, how we know that the film is not on the side of the people who. It's not like just as simple as those people shouldn't have lost their jobs. Like we're pro labor in this house. Well, the whole film Um, is so working class, like not even just the way it looks, but just, it's like, they'll just be like long shots of like generators and stuff. Like it's so, it's very industrial and, um, and like interested in the proletariat in a way that doesn't necessarily inform the film's action like too much, but is, 
it, it feels like a film like very much informed by the working class experience. I, I think it does. I think it's like reading Upton Sinclair's The Jungle, where there are the literal horrors of the slaughterhouse in the sense of it being dirty and dangerous and the meat being treated badly. And so, you know, people are going to go and eat that, but also in the sense that it corrupts the people who work there. Yeah. Um, and so we see this family who are just so committed to this, this way of life, which is butchering with this, this hammer that they are committing unspeakable horrors and, the way that they talk about it is they're sort of the three who are willing to do the killing, who are disparaging to the the man who is the the business-owning front, right? The one who owns the barbecue. They say, well, you're just the cook. You're just the he cook. He gets real mad when they start to disparage him. Yeah, and, and it's interesting to me because I'm like, that's the closest to, like, most viewers to any of the characters, like, that's the closest alignment is most people don't butcher, and, like, I mean, like, there are, pe- there are people who hunt, there are people who work as butchers, there are people who work in slaughterhouses, right, I'm not... Have their own livestock. Yeah, yeah, pretending that that's not, like, a part of our lived reality, but most people watching this film, the most interaction that they have with meat is that it's been slaughtered and butchered and they prepare it and they cook it and eat it and present it maybe. Mm. Um, and so there's this disparaging idea that like you won't do the dirty work and it's very clear from, uh, and he's kind of like, I just couldn't, I've never been able to take pleasure in killing as you said earlier, um, Zachary, but he's kind of defensive about it as if it's attached to their way of life and their conceptions of masculinity and the way it's depicted is like, wow, these people have been really like trained up in something super awful and have bought in, right? And they're um, perpetuating it only for themselves, it seems. Yeah, even the way they talk about, you know, uh, go get your grandpa, like he's the best there ever was. Like it's clearly like a generational, you know, whatever. I generational trauma doesn't feel appropriate in this context but it's like it's a generational series of events that and a, and a history of of values and twisted values that have resulted in the the status of the family when sally and her friends come upon them um I, and, and just the way the the way the house and the action of the story is like set in the backwoods and it's very remote and it, it gives it this kind of sense of like uh, like a bit of like a cul-de-sac or something. Like it's like maybe this has been going on for years and years and years, like this unchanged way of life sort of, but like where things have been allowed to get worse and worse because of the lack of resources and the lack of outreach available. You know, in the, in the very literal example of like they lost their job at the slaughterhouse and that was the only real form of employment around there and left to their own devices, things went horribly wrong, you know? One, I think even more to that point is, is like they lost their job at the slaughterhouse because the efficiency was better for the business owners um, who, being good capitalists, were happy to downsize. But, like, the, I'm, I think intergenerational trauma is actually a great way to think about it, honestly, um, because the, the core inciting incident that, like, kind of leads to all the trauma is that this like is this is where you go to find work is the one industry that exists in your community in this case it's the slaughterhouse right um yeah i mean i mean if you know the the young hitchhiking man the leatherface character I mean, they're jumpy, they're jittery, they, the one... Gibbering. Um, gibbering, the one self-harms, the Leatherface character uh, has lost access to speech, which can be, like, I, I don't like to over-literalize a reading, but, like, that can that can be a literal sign of trauma. And if we read him to be the baby brother, like, he could have been brought up for the express purpose of, like, okay, your older brother doesn't know how to kill, doesn't like to kill, like, we're gonna make a monster out of you. I mean, has he ever worked in the slaughterhouse, or has he only worked in the butcher, like, butcher zone that is in their kitchen, right? Yeah, I always assume that he's, because the titch hiker says my brother used to work there, but 
I mean, he could have been talking about the barbecue guy. Maybe the barbecue guy got out and opened the barbecue shop because he couldn't handle it. You know, there's, it's actually, it's, it's really rich, you know, like for such a short film and for like a quote unquote, like slasher film, it has this real rich, um, kind of mythology built into it even long before it became such a cult favorite. Yeah. And, and one of the things that, that for me makes it an interesting, um, film. So like, I don't like to be scared. I don't really like gory, um, films. Lots of slasher films make me really uncomfortable. I mean, they're supposed to make you uncomfortable and there's something productive in that. It's not something I seek out for myself or choose often. Um, but I really like the way that this one makes you think like, right. Like, and, and about the things that we've been talking about, it's like late stage capitalism about factory farming and butchering and eating meat and, um, and all of those things. Like it's really, uh, it's different from other slasher films that seem to be obsessed with the villain who seems to be a villain for the sake of villainy and the horror seems to be, will you or will you not like which character will make it out alive? Um, and less about sort of what is happening. And I know that there are other, there are slasher films that, that ask us to think differently. And like the Saw franchise asks some really weird, hard questions um, that are different from what I'm kind of describing, but yeah, well, I mean, I think, the yeah one of the things i love about texas chainsaw massacre is that like the complicated <laughs> philosophical the, the, the complicated philosophy and philosophical questions in it aren't like being framed you know this is not the joker like posing these moral <laughs> quandaries to you like this kind of bro intellectual like posturing like this is kind of like it feels nihilistic if you don't think about it much like it just feels like like, you know, the audacity of the film is, is massacre for the sake of massacre. But like when you actually sit down and watch it, um, you know, we get this window into all this. Yeah. Like poverty and like bad working conditions and factory farming and just like industrial waste. And then it's kind of like, I, you know, the Sally's like, final sequence to the movie it's it's almost like i was gonna say the final third it's almost more like the second half it's sort of like, it's like a passion play of like the spirit like enduring all that and still trying to to move on like the final shot is her escaping the property in the back of a, a pickup truck that drove by and picked her up off the highway while leatherface is just sort of doing circles with his uh chainsaw frustrated and spinning around and she's maniacally laughing with this orange sunset behind her um and it's kind of this idea of like it's it's like kind of like almost like a it opens it up to a broader interpretation like almost like the human condition like we are completely at any point in our lives subject to being victim to all of these horrible things that late stage capitalism have presented to us and like you may come out the other end like cackling and smeared with blood and half naked and mad but like that's kind of like the 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 beauty of surviving it yeah and i think there's kind of two ways to read the the rural other which we were watching that I grew up fairly rural. I grew up in a really small town, um, and I grew up in a in a city, but with a very big blue collar population. Yeah, but Zach kept saying like, "Oh, these rural maniacs! These like people in the middle." And I can yeah, like, yeah, Casey's. <laughs> like it's Manson family were out there. Which I have to, we had to dispute about where I'm like the film is setting up the rural, like the other as the rural. Like a gothic like, horror. Yeah, the, yeah, yeah. The wood witch. Um, but I think there's, like, kind of two ways to think about what the film is doing with that. And one is, oh, these backward people who have become this way because they are 
so alone with themselves that all of their humanity gets stripped away. And the other is, well, this is what happens in a community where um, there's just, like, abandonment. Like, government, local government, state level or whatever, like, a federal level abandonment of the community is you end up with just pure, like, awful, awful desperation born out of um, this other kind of starvation, I guess, like starvation of resources. Yeah. It's kind of like an abyss. Yeah. So this has been really a good conversation, I think. Um, this is a really good film. If you have not seen it, if you've only seen the more recent, um, Texas Chainsaw Massacres, I really recommend this one. I think it's a really, like, for someone who doesn't like slaughter films, I think the pacing is really perfect. I think it really makes you think. Um, and it's not too gory. <laughs> yeah, surprisingly. Yeah. Um, yeah. Don't watch the remake. It's stupid. This one's way better. <laughs>